to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this morning we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. Uh, We've charted out, it's going to take us 16 messages to work through the book. This is number 4, and our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through verse 22, which if you have uh, one of the Red Bibles, that is on page 976, 976. And uh, if you will, I want to invite you one more time, if you're able, to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through verse 22. Hear the reading of God's Word. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we've asked already, we ask once more, would you bless the preaching of your Word? Would you enable us to see clearly what it is that you have spoken to us in your Bible? May we understand it and take it in and be moved by it, to be comforted by it. Specifically, I pray for this text, that it would move us to see what a great work you have done in saving us. And what a great blessing, what a great status that is ours as children of the living God. So, would you help us now, allow me to preach in the power of the Spirit, And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of years ago, I started battling a bit of a physical ailment. It seemed every day that I would wake up and it would still be there. It was never far from the forefront of my mind. I remember times when I would be on my living room, praying on my hands and knees with my face on the ground, asking God in desperation, would you please take this discomfort, this 
ailment away. And then, just about a week ago, I walked into my kitchen and all of a sudden it hit me. In fact, I mentioned this to my wife. I said, you know, it's been several days since I've even been aware of this. It seems that, that, that minimally I'm in a time of, of, of great uh, blessing, of great health. That physical ailment that was lingering day after day has simply not been or has been very minimal so that I don't even notice it. And I said to myself in that moment, after stopping and thinking and praising God, I said to myself in that moment, do not forget what it was like to wake up every day and think, here it is again. Now, why? What's the benefit of thinking back to a time in your life which was not all that pleasant? I mean, don't you want to forget those things? Well, the reason I told myself, don't forget those days, is because I spent a lot of years in my life taking for granted physical health. And it's only when you introduce a new category, chronic ailment, that you begin to find yourself much more thankful. I think that dynamic is what is at play in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You see, Paul calls the Ephesians two times. In fact, there are only two exhortations in this text. Two different times, he calls them to remember. And each time, he's calling them to remember a time in their life when they were much worse off. A time in their life that was filled with unpleasantness. Why? Well, I think the reason is because Paul, by introducing this category in their life, by allowing them to remember who they once were and the things that they once suffered, the place they once dwelt, he provides a category for them to be thankful, to recognize the work of God in their lives. You see, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, just a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that text, Paul had prayed for the, uh, for the Ephesian believers three different things. He prayed that God would lavish His Spirit on them, that He would pour out His Spirit, and they would give them, open the eyes of their heart to give them knowledge so that they might know their eternal hope, so that they might know that they are treasured possessions before God, and so they might know the greatness of His power toward them in Jesus Christ. And it seems that what He's doing in chapter 2 is helping them see the greatness of God's power toward them. In other words, he says, I've prayed that you might see the greatness of God's power, how he's worked toward you. Now I'm going to help you see it. And the way he helps them see it is in the same way, two different times, he takes them back to their past. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the text we looked at last week, Paul took them back to a time in their life when they did not know Christ, when they were dead in their sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work within the sons of disobedience, chasing after their flesh with its passions and its desires. And then he reminds them that though they were then by nature children of wrath, God made them alive in Christ Jesus. He did a miracle in their lives in order that they might be for all of eternity trophies of his saving grace. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, he now 
just turns right around and does the same kind of thing again. He reminds them of their past, but this time, he's not just reminding them that they were dead in their sins or by nature children of wrath. He reminds them of a time when they were utterly separated from knowledge of Christ, utterly separated from any hope and, and hostility with the very nation, the very people that God had raised up through Abraham. And again, I think he does this because he understands that their glorious position they have now can only be appreciated and only be rightfully a place where they thank and praise God when they remember where they once were. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through this text in three different sections. The reason I want to walk through it in three different sections is because I think there are three markers in the text that help transition us. The first one is there in verse 11 when you read the phrase, at one time. Paul begins that text, therefore remember that at one time. In verse 13, we start our second section. That verse begins with, but now. At one time, but now. And then finally, Paul draws some implications in verse 19 in the final section where he begins that verse, verse 19, with, so then. At one time, but now, so then. That's how Paul sections off these in three different sections. And so that's how we're going to follow this, those three different sections. First, I want to look at uh, who the Ephesian believers once were. Then we're going to consider, but now what God has done for them is Christ. And then we're going to look at the implications of that, their new status, as we consider, so then, what God has done. So let's first begin with that first category where we see the Ephesians' former ignorance, hopelessness, and godlessness. Their former ignorance, hopelessness, and godlessness. Paul begins in verse 11 by calling them to remember. He writes in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Let me give you some quick background here because these are not categories that we regularly speak of. Circumcision, uncircumcision, and the like. So, so here's a bit of background. In the Old Testament, when God called Abraham to himself, he said to Abraham, I'm going to raise up from you a multitude of descendants. I'm going to raise up from you offspring who will be my people. Those people were the Israelites. And specifically, God said to Abraham, I'm going to enter into covenant with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And he gave them a sign. And the sign that would be that they were his covenant people is that all of Abraham's male descendants would be circumcised. Now, after Abraham, even when Moses came along and gave the Israelites the law, circumcision was inscribed in the law. And so Jews really, some of the rest of the world did this, but most of the rest of the world didn't. Jews were really set apart from everybody else in that they were circumcised and most other nations weren't. And so Jews then began to view the world as us and everybody else. In fact, the term Gentile just means every other person on the planet besides Jews. Jews and everybody else non-Jews, or we can call them Gentiles. Or, as it came to be known, the Jews would call themselves the circumcision, the circumcised people, and everybody else, the uncircumcision, the uncircumcised people. This is what 
Paul is bringing up when he says, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is, by the Jews. He's reminding them that they were outside of that group of people that God had called to Himself and would reveal Himself to. They were outside of all these graces that God was showing the nation of Israel. And yet, before we move on to verse 12, Paul does remind everybody, because it could be that there's a believing Jew listening to this text who might think, well, I'm, I'm so much better off, aren't I? I may be elite. Paul reminds them that the act of circumcision itself was never saving. Right? We see that at the end of verse 11. He says, therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Why does he mention that? Which is made in the flesh by hands. Of course it is. How else are you going to circumcise somebody but using your hands? I don't want to know what the alternative would be, right? Well, the reason Paul mentions this is because he's making the point that circumcision in the flesh, that which we would do with our hands, that was always just a symbol of something greater. So when you read the book of Deuteronomy and you come to chapter 10 or chapter 30, the Lord will begin to speak of the circumcision of the heart. You see, Paul's making the point that if you were born a Jew, circumcised in your flesh, and you were saying, look, I'm among the people of God, that was fair in the sense that you're part of His covenant people. But if you only had the circumcision of the flesh made with hands and your heart was never transformed, you never came to saving faith, you never had the circumcision of the heart that Deuteronomy seeks about, then you would die and suffer the wrath of God in your unbelief just like any other pagan. So, so Paul, Paul's not focusing on the Gentiles as if to say uh, merely being Jewish would be sufficient. But back to his point. He does call the Gentiles to remember how far off they were from being part of God's people to whom He was revealing Himself. In verse 12, he repeats the exhortation again. Remember, he says, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, if God chose, as He did, to reveal Himself to one people on the face of the earth, the Jews, the nation of Israel, which He did, Paul reminds these Gentile Ephesians, listen, you were not among that group. You were ignorant of Christ. You did not even know to look for a Messiah. The reason you didn't know to look for a Messiah is because you were ignorant of the covenant promises, like the promise God made with David when he covenanted with him, saying, after you die, I'm going to raise up from your flesh an offspring who will reign over my kingdom forever. Every Jew would have looked for that Messiah. Every Jew would have said, my hope is the coming Christ. No Gentile would have known that. Why? Because they didn't even know. They were ignorant. They weren't a part of the nation of Israel. They weren't a part of the commonwealth of God. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. They had no hope of salvation. They didn't even know they needed to be saved. And they were without God. Now, it doesn't mean, when it says they were without God, it doesn't mean that they were an irreligious people. In fact, if you read the book of Acts in chapter 19, the Ephesians were a very religious people. In fact, Ephesus was the home to a temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. They worshipped her, but despite all these gods and goddesses they would have dedicated themselves to, they did not know the one true God, the God who has revealed Himself 
in the Scriptures and who had revealed Himself through Abraham and the patriarchs to the people of Israel. This is the state of every Gentile who was not part of God's covenant people, every Gentile who was not under the Mosaic covenant. Now again, Paul wants them to remember at that time when they were ignorant of Christ, ignorant of the covenants of promise, ignorance of the Scripture, ignorant of salvation. When they were ignorant, they were hopeless, they were a godless people, he wants them to remember that. And again, he wants them to remember this because he's establishing a category where he's eventually going to say, and the Lord has turned that all around. But before we get there, let's just stop and apply this to ourselves for a second. If it's helpful for the Ephesian believers to remember a time when they had no hope and they were godless and they were ignorant of what the Bible says, surely it's helpful for us to think the same way. Now, I know for some of us, you actually can't remember that. For some of us, you were raised in a home where you heard the Bible read to you all the time. You were taught the gospel. You were brought to church. This was very common to you. You can't remember a time when you were ignorant. You can't remember a time when you did not know what the Bible taught, ignorant of Scripture. You were hopeless or, or without God. You, you don't remember this. But some of you do. Some of you actually very much are in the same place as these Ephesians. And you can remember a time when the name of Jesus made no sense to you. The thought of salvation seemed as foreign as anything. My, my, my brother-in-law, I remember when he was first met the family. He, he came down and he visited us around Christmas, and we all went to uh, this Christmas musical. And I remember we were standing, and he was standing beside me, and the choir sang about the virgin bearing a son. And my brother-in-law said out loud, no way. <laughs> if you don't know the categories of the Bible, that is impossible, isn't it? Jill Veltman shared and Wednesday night in our small group about how when she came to faith in Scotland, she uh, visited a church for the first time just having no idea about anything. She was just like them, ignorant of everything going on. She was listening to the man preach, and she heard a couple other gentlemen saying amen after he said something. And so she thought, oh, I see how this works. You, everybody chimes in on what you think about what he's saying. So she began to say, I don't think so. After he would say something, right? Like the British Parliament or something, right? Everybody's chiming in. I mean, there are obviously many of us who would say, Brother, what, what Paul's saying here, I relate to. Remember a time when I was ignorant, hopeless, godless. But I also want to say, if you were raised in a home where you were taught the Bible, you were brought to church, you did have the gospel preached, you are not in a place where, where you're going to miss out on recognizing the miracle of what's God done in your life. Because again, remember in verse 11, the circumcision made with hands. Paul pointed out to the Jews, you could have been born into just the most unbelievable situation where you were taken to the temple, where you heard the Bible read, where your family helped you offer the sacrifices, and you were circumcised in your flesh, and it went no further. There may be many of you who were born in that situation where you heard the gospel you heard the Scripture read, and you know many others who are in the exact same place, many others who may have gone through all the external motions, maybe even getting wet in the baptistry, but their hearts were never changed. And so, you should not take your salvation for granted either. 
Even if you were raised in a home where you heard the Bible and were taught the gospel and were brought to church, it is a miracle that God saved you. So the first category then that Paul creates is he he brings to mind the Ephesians. He wants them to remember their former ignorance, hopelessness, and godlessness. But then he moves them to our second category, which begins in verse 13, but now and shows them what Jesus has done to change things. What Jesus has done to change things. In verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He he uses this language of distance, right? You were were far off, and now you brought near. And and that language makes sense when you look at verse 12, right? Everything about verse 12, about who they once were, suggests distance, right? They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without God, right? Everything, Everything about that He's saying you were away. You were away from God, distant from Him. He says, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, we can say, well, I get it. We were far off. We did not know God. And now we've been brought to God. We've been brought near to Him. But why does he mention we've been brought near by the blood of Christ? We spell that out in verses 14 and 15. Let's look at verse 14 in the first half of 15, and we'll follow his argument to that point. Verse 14, for he himself, that is Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What's he talking about? Well, let's just just walk through it slowly. I mentioned that when God called Abraham to himself and said, I'm raising up a nation from you, he eventually led out that nation, led them out of the, the, uh, the slavery in Egypt under Moses, and God again made a covenant with them. I will be your people, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And he gave them a number of laws. And interestingly, many of the laws were given to them so as to make them a distinct people. He called them to be circumcised. Again, that would have made them distinct. Most nations on the planet didn't do that. The Jews did. He called them only to eat certain foods. For example, they didn't eat pork. So when the rest of the nations were enjoying bacon or whatever they had then, the Jews didn't. So they had this separate practice of circumcision, this separate food laws. They they observed certain festivals and feasts and Sabbaths. So on every Saturday, they would rest from their labors. The rest of the world didn't do that. They would celebrate feasts like the Passover, festivals like the Festival of Booths and the like. They celebrated these feasts and festivals, and again, that made them distinct. Even their clothing, they were commanded to wear certain kinds of clothes. They could not wear clothing that had two kinds of material in it. So if it were made of cotton and polyester, no Jew could wear that. Only had to be one kind of material. Even their behavior was supposed to set them apart, right? They should have lived in a way that the rest of the world said they live differently from us. 
But all of these laws, whether it was circumcision or the food laws or the laws about their garments or the laws about Sabbaths and the feasts and festivals or laws about the behavior, every bit of it was to show that they are distinct people. They are separate. They are other than everybody else on the face of the earth. And so it created, the law created this great separation. Jews and Gentiles. And accordingly, it brought much hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Just to show you the separation, it was seen in the temple itself. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about uh, the temple uh, there that, that Herod built, and he said, all on one plane, there, there was a certain part of the temple that only the priests could enter and another part of the temple uh, structure that only male Jews could enter into another part of the structure that, that only female Jews could enter. But, but all of them were actually on the same plane. But when you got to the part of the temple grounds that the Gentiles could enter, you went down from that geographical plane, you went down a number of steps. And then at the bottom of those steps, there was a wall. And on the other side of that wall was an inscription in Greek and in Latin. Interestingly, they found two copies of the Greek inscription from that wall, one of them in the late 1800s, one of them in the early 1900s. And so we actually have what was written on there, at least what was written on there in Greek, although Josephus says it was also written there in Latin. And here's what that wall read. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. This was a serious deal. You're not a Jew. That's what the law pronounced to every Gentile. And so as I mentioned, there was a literal wall, but that wall was really just representative of the main thing that divided them, the law of Moses with all its calls to be distinct. Well, Paul, in the verses we just read, in verses 14 and 15, says that Jesus broke down that wall of hostility. Now, does he mean that physical wall that was at the temple? No. Jesus didn't run over and knock that wall down. He says he, he, he has broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments. Look at verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, he's telling us how he broke down the wall, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So Jesus broke down this wall of hostility, the, the hostility that, that, that existed between Jew and Gentile Jesus broke down that wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What's that mean? Because Jesus, if indeed he abolished the law of Moses, doesn't this remind us of Matthew 5.17, where Jesus explicitly says in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now Paul here writes, Jesus broke down this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. What is it? Is this one place we just find contradiction in the Bible? We throw it out? No, no, no. The word translated abolish here is not the same word 
in Matthew 5.17. And perhaps it would be better to translate the word differently than abolish, because everybody perhaps is going to read the text and think the same thing I did. Isn't that exactly what he said he didn't do? But this same word, translated abolish, is mentioned three times in 2 Corinthians 3. The same text that we heard Gary read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, three different times. In that text, Paul says that God brought the covenant, the law covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Moses when he brought the people of Israel, and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and he gave them all the laws. Three different times, Paul says that that law was brought to an end. And that phrase translated brought to an end is this word right here, abolish. So the Bible consistently says that Jesus brought the law, brought the covenant that God made with Moses to an end. Okay, well, how does this work? Remember, when God made the covenant with Moses, He brought them out of Egypt, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, He gave them all kinds of laws, and they failed to keep those laws. They failed to keep God's commandments like crazy. They were an extremely disobedient people. And you know, part of the intent of the law was to show them that they were a disobedient people. That was part of its purpose. That's why the text Gary read earlier mentioned the covenant God made with Moses. He calls it a ministry of death or a ministry of condemnation. I mean, nobody talks that way now, do they? I think God's called me to a ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. People be like, I just hope you do that elsewhere, right? Don't practice that ministry here. Well, the reason the law had this ministry of death or this ministry of condemnation is because the way the law worked was this way. God gave all kinds of commandments that the Israelites could not keep. So every time the Israelites failed in keeping the commandments of God, the law was saying to the Israelite, you are condemned. You deserve to die. Ministry of condemnation, ministry of death. Well, why is that a good thing for the law to be saying, you are condemned, you deserve to die? Because the law's intent was to scream to every Jew, you need a righteousness that is not your own. The law functioned like a shadow cast from something in a distant area. Every Jew should have looked around standing in the shadow and gone, you know what? I'm going to follow the shadow until I find the substance. Until I find what's casting this long shadow. The law was always meant to say to the Israelite, you can't do enough, but look for one who will. Look for one who can. Look for one who will come and will be perfectly righteous and do what you need. The law was always saying you can't do enough, but you can be saved by faith in the one who does. This is why the law, by its very nature, was temporary. This is the way the rest of the Bible talks about it. God's covenant that he made with Moses, Paul to the Galatians will say, the law was given until the one would come to whom the promise had been made. It was always temporary, like a tutor, like a guardian saying, look for the one to come, look for the one to come. And sure enough, Jesus comes along. God the Son took on flesh. He entered the world. And when he entered the world, according to Galatians, Paul says Jesus Christ was born under the law. Why is that important? 
Because in one sense, he was just like any other Israelite, born under all those commandments. And you know what? He fulfilled the law perfectly. He did it in two ways. First, he fulfilled the law by being the fulfillment of everything the law pointed to. So every time there was an animal sacrifice, it's never been the case that sacrificing a bull or a goat could take away your sins. Those were always just pointers to the true Lamb of God who could take away our sins. Jesus was a fulfillment of that. He was a fulfillment of every priest who would, who would petition God on behalf of others. That, he was always pointing to the great high priest would come. Jesus also fulfills the law in that he perfectly keeps it. No other individual on the face of the earth ever perfectly obeyed everything God commanded. Jesus did. So one, he fulfills the law in that he perfectly keeps it and is everything the law pointed to. But second, he also fulfills the law in that every penalty the law called for to those who do not keep it, he bore. You see, when Jesus went to the cross and died, he did not die because he deserved to die. He didn't deserve to die. He had done nothing wrong. He went to the cross and died because he was bearing the punishment that the law demanded for every lawbreaker. That's what Jesus did. On the cross, he bore the wrath of God for lawbreakers, for sinners like you and me. So the reason Jesus Christ brings the law to an end, brings that covenant with Moses to an end, is one, it was always meant to be temporary until he came. And so he brings it to an end by perfectly fulfilling it, perfectly obeying it, and perfectly satisfying the penalty or the punishment that should come on every lawbreaker. But it's not that Jesus just brings the law to an end or brings the law covenant to an end so that now no longer are we under that covenant God made with Moses. But Jesus established a new covenant. He said there's a new way God's going to relate to His people. And no longer, under this new covenant, no longer are we going to separate ourselves by being circumcised. No longer are there going to be food laws where you can't eat this and can't eat that. In fact, if you like cat, have at it, right? It doesn't matter what you wear. You wear clothing with two materials, three materials, 17 materials, it doesn't matter. Right? Even the Sabbath itself is fulfilled in Christ on and on and on. He brings that to an end, establishes a new covenant that doesn't have that. You know what the nature of the new covenant is, interestingly? Although under the new covenant, we are not all required to be circumcised in our flesh. It doesn't matter, Paul says, whether here or there, it doesn't matter. What every new covenant believer is marked by is that we have circumcision of heart. That's what Jesus has done. So when Paul says, then, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he's our peace. He has made us both one. He's, he's, he's gotten rid of this hostility between Jew and Gentile. How? He's made us both one because he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances. By satisfying the law, by fulfilling the law, by bringing the law to an end so it's no longer the covenant under which God operates with His people, there's no longer all these reasons to divide Jew and Gentile. So the hostility should be brought to an end. But that's not all He did. If we continue on in verse 15, it notes that Jesus did something else. Verse 15, 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So it's not just that Jesus brings the law covenant to an end so that we no longer have all these markers that say Jew and non-Jew, right? That hostility's done. But Paul also says he creates one new man. A people that transcend Jew or Gentile. A new people. How does he do that? Well, notice in verse 16, the phrase, us both. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Why does Paul mention us both? Here's why. Because although Jews and Gentiles saw themselves as very different, they both have the same problem. It doesn't matter if you were born being read the law of Moses or you were born a pagan Gentile knowing nothing about God. Both of you were born, as we saw last week in Ephesians 2-3, both of you were born by nature children of wrath. Both of you were born into this world by nature under the wrath of God, guilty in your sins, corrupt in your nature so that you would sin and keep on sinning. Both Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God because you know what? God had hostility against us. We were objects of His wrath. His judgment was justly bearing down on us. This is why the Bible speaks of us in in Romans chapter 5 as enemies of God. But Jesus Christ took care of that. He reconciled us both to God through His blood. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He was bearing the wrath of God that should have come to me and to you, that should have gone to the believing Jew or the believing Gentile. And by dying and paying the penalty for our sins and then being raised from the dead on the third day, He was reconciling any Jew who would believe to God. And He's reconciling any Gentile who would believe to God. And so Paul says, here's what Jesus Christ has done. By reconciling us both to God, which by the way, at the end of verse 16, when he says, thereby killing the hostility, I don't think there he's talking about the hostility between Jew and Gentile anymore. I think he's talking about the hostility between us and God. The hostility between Jew and Gentile has been ended because he ended the hostility between us and God. He reconciled us both to God, and by reconciling us both to God and making us both children of God, He's reconciled us to one another. And so again, now there's no longer Jews and Gentiles among those who believe Jews and Gentiles. There's the church. This is again why Paul then says in verse 17, or in verse 16, might reconcile us both in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he adds in verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He brought us to God by living and dying and being raised for us and by preaching to us the gospel. I think that's probably a reference to the apostles and their ministry. 
Christ through them preaching the gospel to Gentiles, Christ through them preaching the gospel of Jews, bringing us both to God so that in verse 18, he can say, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. No longer are there those who can enter the temple and be close to God in His presence and have access to God. Now He's made you and Gentile, as many as who believe in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, all of us have access to God by one Spirit through Him. So first we see their former ignorance, hopelessness, and godlessness. Then we see what Jesus has done to change things. He's brought the law to an end by His life, by His death, by His resurrection. He's made one new people. Which brings us then to our third point, our new status in Christ. Our new status in Christ. Verse 19 begins, so then. That is, let me tell you, in contrast to where you once were, who you are now. Verse 19, so then. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember how Paul said to them, you were strangers, you were separated, you weren't among the commonwealth of Israel. Well, now, he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you are fellow citizens of the Jews or fellow citizens of Israel. Because remember, what Jesus Christ has done is not, he's not trying to make us all part of the nation of Israel. He's creating one new people. Jews and Gentiles. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Who are the saints? All those who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. He has made a new nation. In fact, Peter says, a holy nation, a chosen race. No longer do we say the people of God are one nation and one race. The people of God are those who believe from all nations. The people of God are those who believe from all races. We are all citizens of His people. He continues on in verse 19, and members of the household of God. It's not just that He's made a new people like a new nation or a new race or a new kingdom. He's also made us part of His family. We're all members of the household of God. We are all children of God together, those of us who believe in Him. And then finally, he mentions that we are being built into a living temple. He writes in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, we might say, I I get it, why he would say we're like a new nation, fellow citizens of the same nation, because... Israel was a nation in the Old Covenant, and that's how God establishes people. We might say, I even understand why he would say we're, we're part of God's family, part of the household of God, because that just makes sense. That's a warm image. We're, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, believing Jew and believing Gentile, one in Christ. But why does he mention that we're being built into this temple, a holy temple, as if as if each stone in the temple is actually an individual, and he's, he's building a temple structure out of people that's still growing every day as more and more people believe. Why use that imagery? The reason he uses that imagery is because it was in the temple that God said, my presence will dwell there. So when he calls us his temple, 
it's because he's saying to us, my presence dwells with you. That's exactly what he says in verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what he's doing. So, brothers and sisters, I know, let's just step back for a second. I know that we live in a world where outside of these walls, there is all kinds of division and all kinds of hostility. If we're just honest with ourselves, all you have to do is turn on the news and you will be told that there is and that there should be division between whites and blacks, Hispanics and Asians, the poor and the wealthy, the educated and the uneducated, the blue collar and the white collar, right? I mean, everything about our society screams there is division and there is hostility. And you know what our response should be? Not in the church. Because Jesus Christ has done something amazing. He has fulfilled everything that would have separated us. He's put the law of Moses as a covenant to an end. He's made a new covenant where we all have circumcision of heart. And you know what? When we look at it as an individual and we fit those categories that the world says should divide us, you know what we look at and we say, you are a fellow citizen of this people with me. You're a fellow member of the household of God. You're a fellow stone, a person that, that he's building into a temple because God's presence indwells both of us. So one of the things that the church should be in the world is a contrasting picture of the glory of God's work in us. And this is why Paul writes this way. The Ephesian elders may have, or the Ephesian believers, they may have missed the glorious work that God has done to end their hostility with God and end their hostility with one another had they not been told, stop and remember who you once were. And you know what? Outside of the miraculous, amazing, gracious work of God, we would be out there as divided against our fellow citizens, our fellow people, our fellow humans as they are. But we are able to give a counter-cultural picture of something I pray that just by looking at us, they will want to be part of. In fact, Jesus says, you know how they are going to know you are my disciples? It's by your love for one another. And you know why we can love one another? Because he has ended the hostility by his blood. And so this morning, what I want us to do is give thanks to God for what he has done for us in Christ. In fact, what I want you to do this week is really just a couple of things. I want to encourage you just to med if I, let me just mix my metaphors for a bit. I want you to let this truth wash over you. Just sit and take in this text. All that God has done for you in Christ, ending hostility between you and your Creator and, and, and with brothers and sisters. And I'll tell you, one of the most glorious evidences of that of this, of this work that he's done to reconciling us to one another is that there are individuals in this room. This, in fact, let me say it this way. This room is full of individuals. And by this room, I mean that one too. This room is full of individuals whom I did not even know a year ago. And today I love. And you can testify the same thing. How can that be true? They have no idea how that can be true, 
It can be true because that's what Jesus does. So I want you just to let this truth just wash over you this week. And here's how I'm mixing my metaphors. It was water, now it's a seed. Let it wash over you and then take root in your heart so that we might be a people who all the time bring glory to God and His reconciling work in the midst of a world that is utterly unreconciled. And let's take this message of reconciliation to them. Preach to them how they might be reconciled to God and preach to them how they might be reconciled to us.